leading-edge progressive ideas and analysis. And remember to support independent media financially. Welcome to City Watch, a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I'd like to thank you for staying with WBAI this afternoon and tuning in for this special coverage today, because for two hours today, we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about an incident that took place 30 years ago this month, the death of Yusef Hawkins, and what has happened in New York City as a result of that over the last three decades. But as you know from listening to our programming that just concluded a few moments ago, we've got a lot of special programming today uh, because it is our final final day of the summer fundraising drive. And I hope you can just take a moment to pledge today to become a BAI buddy or to uh, just even to contribute a one-time donation just to be able to support us because as you know by listening to us that we're commercial free, we're listener supported peace and justice radio, which we've provided for more than half a century. So if you believe in peace and justice and freedom of speech, please make a pledge today. I'm trying to raise a little over $500. That's it. That's 10 donations of $50 each during the show, and I even have a a special offer for you, something that my colleague from Driving Forces on Thursday nights, Celeste Katz, has been able to secure that I'm going to get to in just a moment. But the number to call to pledge today is 516-620-3602. That number is 516-620-3602. And if you become a BAI buddy, for instance, you, you don't just get a tote bag, you get a membership card, you you feel good because you're supporting uh, non-commercial, uh, non-corporate uh, radio here in New York City that's been around for 60 years. You get also do get perks like discounts to the Museum of the City of New York, uh, Zipcar. So you check it out on our website at wbai.org and you'll be able to see what some of those... Uh, perks are of becoming a BAI buddy. You also can pledge online at give to wbai.org. And if you're on your phone, well, text WBAI to 41444. Again, that's text WBAI to 41444. As I mentioned, my colleague Celeste uh, from Driving Forces was able to secure donations of several books uh, that we are going to be able to put together today to give to you. So if you make a $75 donation, you can get two books about one of our favorite topics here at WBAI. They're both about Donald Trump. One is called The Best People by Alexander Nazarian, and the other is The Method to the Madness by Alan Sokin and Aaron Short. These are fantastic books. We've had the authors here to be able to talk about what really goes on in uh, not just Trump's administration behind the scenes when he's chosen the air quotes best people, but... uh, but what goes on in his mind as well. And they were incredibly insightful. These are great books. If you donate today $75 uh, by calling 516-620-3602, you can get both of these books, 
The Best People by Alexander Nazarian and The Method to the Madness by Alan Sokin and Aaron Short. These are really good reads. So I want to get to the topic that has been on my mind for the last few days. Uh, you know, uh, when I was trying to book one of the guests, it reminded me why, uh, you know, uh, that he was not going to be in town. And it was because he was going to uh, honor uh, the anniversary of the death of Michael Brown, uh, which took place five years ago uh, in Ferguson. And, uh, you know, in the wake of that, state and federal prosecutors declined to charge Officer Darren Wilson, who eventually resigned uh, after uh, that fatal shooting. But and as the New York Times had reported this Friday, Ferguson, you know, is a dramatically different city than the one that erupted in violence five years ago after Mr. Brown's death. And uh, the Times had pointed to a greater diversity in uh, Ferguson's governing body and in the police department and had mentioned that the, uh, the commissioner is now African-American, but that residents also contended that what all still is persistent in that community is that African-Americans are still stopped uh, and frisked at much higher rates than others. So that death had triggered, as you know, a number of protests and marches, not just uh, in Ferguson, but across the country in cities large and small. So as that anniversary approached, I started thinking about another anniversary here in New York City, and uh, one that uh, brought to light uh, a, a considerable tension among different uh, communities here in the city, and that was the death of Yusef Hawkins, which took place on August 23rd of 1989 uh, in, in Bensonhurst. So now, while that was not between the police uh, and the public, uh, it did bring to light a number of uh, cons uh, concerns here in the city. It illustrated a divide in the city, and it also helped usher in a change at City Hall. Uh, New York City's first African-American mayor, David Dinkins, who uh, only three weeks later, uh, three weeks after this incident, uh, won the Democratic uh, primary against uh, the existing mayor, Ed Koch. So uh, if you're not familiar with the case of Yusef Hawkins, uh, he was just two years younger than Michael Brown when he had been killed. Uh, a 16-year-old black teenager who was shot to death uh, on August 23rd when he and his friends were walking through Bensonhurst, about seven miles from where he had lived uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, Bensonhurst at the time was predominantly working class, Italian-American. Well, today we're going to revisit this difficult chapter in our city's history. We're going to talk to several people who are actively involved in covering the case, uh, documenting it, and even calling for change uh, here in New York City. The first guest, which will come up in a short while, will be our former mayor, David Dinkins, uh, who only, um, as I mentioned, three weeks after the incident, had won that Democratic primary to become uh, the city's next mayor. Now, I had arrived in New York City uh, only a few years after uh, Yusuf's death, uh, but I was familiar with it because I had covered cops and crime in northern New Jersey for a newspaper for a number of years, and there had been another incident that had taken place where a white police, police officer, Gary Spath, had fatally shot a black teenager, uh, Philip Pinnell, in the back uh, in Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, and that similarly had prompted a number of marches led by the Reverend Al, Al Sharpton at the time in that Bergen County community. And then throughout my time here, 
uh, in New York City as a reporter, whether it was at the New York Post or Daily News or New York One News, I came to know Yousef's father, uh, Moses Stewart, who had worked uh, with Al Sharpton. And also I had gotten to know a number of people who were connected to the story of Yousef Hawkins, including reporters, uh, one of whom became, was a colleague of mine at New York One, who's going to be on in the second hour of this show, Dominic Carter, uh, who had broken a lot of the stories uh, regarding Yousef. Uh, so just uh, to recap briefly about this incident, August 23rd, 1989, Yusuf and three friends ventured to Bensonhurst from their home about seven miles away in Brooklyn. Uh, the group uh, uh, were walking, were going to Bensonhurst because they were looking, uh, going to look at a, a used 1982 Pontiac that had been up for sale and they were considering purchasing it. They were in the uh, wrong place at the wrong time because uh, what was going on in Bensonhurst was there was a young woman, Gina Feliciano, who had uh, uh, told a, uh, a group of uh, uh, friends from the neighborhood that she was inviting a number of black and Hispanic people to come there to create problems. And so a small group had formed uh, in Bensonhurst, you know, uh, you know, on the lookout for individuals. And that's when they crossed paths with Yusuf and his friends, followed them for a number of blocks, uh, starting to uh, shout expletives and saying, let's shoot them. And then five blocks from the subway stop where they had gotten off, they surrounded Yusuf and his friends. Someone had pulled a 32 caliber uh, pistol, fired four shots, and one of them hit Hawkins in the chest, one right through his heart. So the police have said that uh, he... Um, he, that there were as many as 30 uh, to 40 uh, white young males who had been part of that group. In the end, police rounded up about 10 uh, members of this mob, and that included uh, Keith Mondello and Joey Fama, uh, two of uh, the, you know, the ringleader and the, uh, the uh, shooter, the gentleman who was convicted of that, uh, Joey Fama. So uh, both were among those who were convicted. Mandela went to prison, Fama went to prison, is still there, and Mandela was eventually released uh, less than 10 years later. I was a reporter at New York One at the time. I was able to track him down. I met with Keith Mandela just after he got out of prison, and through his attorney, I sat with him, talked about the case and his life and his message that he wanted to send to the family of Yusuf Hawkins. Here is that segment from 1999. Keith Mandela was sentenced to 12 years in prison for his role in the death of Hawkins in, the, in August of 1989. At the time, the judge said without him, no one would have died. Now, a decade later, we sat down with him, and there was one clear message that he wanted to get across. I'm not a monster. I'm not even anything close to a monster. Keith Mandela is searching for forgiveness, not just from the public, but from the family of Yusef Hawkins, the teenager slain in the racial attack in Bensonhurst nearly 10 years ago. Mandela served eight years in prison for being the ringleader. Mandela did not take the stand when he went to trial, nor has he ever spoken publicly about the trial or Hawkins until now. In an exclusive interview with New York One this weekend, Mandela said he is still trying to apologize in person to the Hawkins family. I'd like to meet them face to face. Um, they would be able to uh, vent their anger to me, as I'm sure they would like to. Um, I would be very accepting of that because I know that what happened was wrong. And I would do anything that I could to atone for what happened. 
what happened took place at this corner on August 23, 1989. Mandelo and some friends, angry that a friend had invited black and Hispanic teens to her birthday party in the predominantly Italian neighborhood, came to the area armed with baseball bats. Meanwhile, Hawkins and some friends had gone to Bensonhurst to see a used car, and they were confronted by the group. 19-year-old Joseph Fama shot Hawkins twice in the chest, fatally. Fama was sentenced to 32 years to life in prison. Mandela was acquitted of murder and manslaughter, but convicted of lesser crimes. I got a few guys together because I was threatened, and there was supposed to be a fight. And at 18 years old, you your first uh, thing is, well, to protect yourself, and it's a macho thing, and it's kind of like a protect-your-turf type of thing. I did not know Yusuf Hawkins or his friends. Um, that part of it was coincidental, very unfortunately. Um, this wasn't planned or, 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 or set out to do to to uh, to kill Yusuf Hawkins or, or his friends, uh, and it just kind of got out of control, basically. He claims to this day that he is not a racist. It's easy to be called a racist um, and then have everyone believe it, but the fact was that the situation didn't really start out as a racist situation. Obviously, it ended up that way because a black boy got killed by white guys or, or, or a gang of white kids. Um, I had uh, black and Spanish friends uh, that were actually there that night, but for, for some reason or another, they, they didn't get arrested. The attack landed him a 12-year prison sentence, polarized New York City, and contributed to the defeat of Mayor Ed Koch in the election of the city's first African-American mayor, David Dinkins. Mandela's three bids for parole were denied, but he was able to be released after eight years from prison because of good behavior. The release and an elaborate welcome home party last May triggered a protest by the Reverend Al Sharpton. A short time later, Mandela penned this letter of apology to the Hawkins family. Hawkins' parents, Diane Hawkins and Moses Stewart, who is now an aide to Sharpton, wrote a response but said that Mandela should, and I am quoting here, give up the names of the unknown members of the mob responsible for killing our son. Mandela said that that is an unfair request. As far as identifying others, I mean, um, basically, I don't know where, what, what that would lead to. Um, <clears throat> Ten years ago when this happened, um, you know, there was a, a more than a proper investigation, and they know all the suspects that were involved. Mandela now wears this ankle monitor to ensure that he maintains a curfew, um, one of the conditions he must abide by until the year 2002. He is working as a clerk, attending a college in Brooklyn, and thinking now about a career as a teacher. Well, basically atone for what happened, and maybe some way, maybe work with younger kids or help people and maybe speak about racism. In the meantime, he said he plans to write another letter to the family. And I would hope that they would find more peace in possibly forgiving me. Do you think you'll find more peace? Yes, I would. Now, technically, Mandelo is not on parole, although he must adhere to certain conditions. Besides the curfew, he cannot drink alcohol and he cannot leave the five boroughs. He also is prohibited from associating with anyone convicted of a serious crime. And he says he has not been in touch with anyone who was with him on that fateful night. So shortly after that interview, um uh, Moses Stewart and I had talked and he came to New York One Studios, Keith Mandelo. Moses was accompanied by Al Sharpton 
and uh, Keith and Moses and Reverend Al had met privately. Uh, they divulge only that Keith had apologized then directly to Moses uh, that this olive branch helped a little to ease the pain that had taken place uh, as a result of this incident, that not all the questions have been answered to this day, which we'll discuss with some of our guests, but at least that meeting that had taken place uh, about a decade after the shooting was uh, you know, a, 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 an effort to be able to repair some of the damage that had been caused. As I mentioned uh, prior to this segment, uh, the this incident took place only a few weeks before the Democratic primary and became a key issue in the campaign. Then Mayor Ed Koch had said that black politicians and minister ministers were wrong to hold demonstrations in Bensonhurst where the shooting took place because that only ex- escalated tensions in the neighborhood, which was overwhelmingly white. But David Dinkins, who was the uh, only black candidate in that Democratic primary, defended the demonstrations and called on the good people of Bensonhurst to break their silence and speak out against racial hostility that contributed to the killing and produced scenes of bigotry at the demonstrations. Joining us now uh, here on WBAI is former Mayor David Dinkins. Welcome to WBAI. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be able to talk with you again, Mayor. You had been Manhattan Borough President at the time that this incident had taken place uh, and running for mayor, and you had said that, and I'm quoting, the tone and climate of this city does get set at City Hall. Can you talk about what that climate was like back then in 1989? Well, my recollection is that uh, it was not particularly good. Um it had a different posture than did I. And how did this incident, the shooting of Yusuf Hawkins, uh, inflame tensions and divide the city at that time? Well, it it, it did because of the attitude of uh, some people. Uh, Should not have, but it did. And uh, you had you had built your campaign, a good part of your campaign, on a promise uh, to reconcile the city. Talk a little about how this affected and uh, your campaign and your efforts to bring the city together. Well, I think we were, I think we were largely successful in that effort to uh, bring bring the bring the city city together. Excuse me, man. I'm on the phone. Come on in, Davy. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sure. So um, we were talking a little about how the incident involving Yusef Hawkins affected your campaign. How did it, you know, affect how you, you know, how you related to people on the streets and about, I mean, you know, and about how you then witnessed a significant increase in those who supported you, thinking you would bring more change to the city. Well, those who supported me felt that uh, my election would, would uh, assist the general calm in the city, and perhaps it did. Um, the, uh, there are those that... that uh, have a different attitudes than, than I. But uh, that's their problem. So, uh, 
Yusuf's funeral had been held about seven days after the shooting took place. You had attended the funeral, and, and in reading up on this, it was obvious a number of people, especially politicians, were not welcome. Some, uh, the Republican candidates especially, uh, were encouraged not to attend at that time. But when you had attended, uh, you had drawn cheers from the crowd. It was estimated about 1,000 people were there. Talk to me about why it was important for you to be present at Yusuf's funeral. Well, I thought it was important for me to be there. Uh, and uh, I, I always will believe that it was good that I went. You, you once, uh, Mayor, you once said that Yusuf Hawkins had died of... Yusuf Hawkins died of racism in the first degree. That is a crime far more common than most of us are willing to admit. Can you talk a little about that? Well, that says it right there. Uh, um, (coughs) Sorry. Pardon me. So, um, are you okay, Mayor? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay. (laughs) Uh, uh, shortly, you know, after you were elected mayor, um, you know, what were some of the things that you felt were important to do right away to help the city heal? Well, I thought it was important that we, you you talk about it. You can't act like, uh, these tensions don't exist, but, uh, uh, we we should, we shouldn't let naysayers make the judgments and uh, we didn't looking looking back what do you what do you want people to know about Yusef Hawkins and about his his legacy well he uh, should not have died in vain uh, we should we should all remember I think about currently the climate in our country and about the, you know, uh, the, um, the rise in white supremacy and hate, uh, incidents of violence and hate uh, crimes. And do you, do you worry about the environment in this country right now that we might see uh, more opportunities for there to be more use of Hawkins? Well, the, uh, the leadership in Washington is, does not give one great encouragement, I tell you that. And as for yourself, Mayor, when you think back to those earliest days after the shooting, what is the one most vivid memory you have uh, of, of New York City at that time? Well, I, I will always believe that most people are good people. And... Um, I think even then, the majority of the people of our city were uh, thought positively about uh, such things. There was a lot of uh, 
animosity in the area towards Reverend Al Sharpton holding marches in Bensonhurst. Uh, and I know uh, there were opportunities uh, for you and him to, to meet and talk one, at one point at a Brooklyn church, which uh, I think you or he had then called a giant step towards achieving racial harmony. Did Reverend yeah. Al help or hurt during this time? I think he helped. <laughs> I think he helped. Um, he's, a, he's really a, a, a good, decent man. And uh, the, uh, the there are those who didn't agree with everything that he said or did, who uh, frankly were less helpful than they might have been. And as as I get ready to wrap up, Mayor, just wanted to uh, ask you a little about a message that you want to send to people today when they look back on an incident like this, if there is a learning lesson from what took place, what do you want people to, to, to take away from an incident like this? I want people to believe that most people are good people and that we have a lot, <laughs> pardon me, we have a lot more in, in, in common with each other than we realize, and that uh, if if we look at things that way, I think we'll all be better off. Mayor David Dinkins, I really appreciate you taking time this weekend to be able to talk to me here on WBAI. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. So you've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. This is a special two-hour uh, look back on the uh, life and death of Yusef Hawkins. I am Jeff Simmons, your host for this afternoon. I do want to remind you, uh, though, today is the last day of our summer fundraising fundraising drive. If you've got a few moments, I really would like to encourage you to please just make a donation to WBAI. There are multiple ways you can do it. You can do it like I do, which is I've become a WBAI buddy, which I give a recurring donation, comes right out of my uh, bank account account or credit card charge every month of a certain amount of money, uh, you know, $5, $10, $20 a month. But if you also want to just make a one-time donation today of $75 by calling 516-620-3602, you can receive a pair of books that my colleague Celeste Katz has lined up for you, both on Donald Trump. One is called The Best People by Alexander Nazarian. The other is called The Method to the Madness by Alan Sokin and Aaron Short. That number to call is 516-620-3602. You also can go online and just pledge at give2wbai.org, or you can use your smartphone and text WBAI to 41444. Again, you are supporting commercial-free, listener-supported Peace and Justice Radio. We've been around for more than a half a century. We would love to be able to continue to provide you with exceptional voices, diverse, progressive voices, peace and justice voices. Again, you're listening to WBAI Radio. Uh, we just spoke a few moments ago uh, to former Mayor David Dinkins about those early days 30 years ago in uh, the wake of the death of Yusef Hawkins. So as uh, has come up, 
to this day, there still is a great deal of uh, a division over what took place that night and many unanswered questions. And so perhaps a new documentary that is slated to appear on HBO is going to shed further light on the life and death of Yusuf Hawkins. So that brings me to my next guest, the director of the film, Muta Ali. His previous feature documentary, Life's Essentials with Ruby D, became Kickstarter.com's seventh highest funded African-American related documentary in the world. World, and featured Ruby D, Harry Belafonte, Felicia Rashad, Spike Lee, and others. Muta Ali has produced more than 125 segments featuring notable figures, figures like 50 Cent, Idris Elba, Ice Cube, uh, and BET Network founder Bob Johnson. He's a familiar voice or face on NPR, ABC, Fox, and a number of other outlets. And he's been covered in the Daily News, Essence, Ebony, and a number of other media outlets. Muta Ali, welcome to City Watch. Hi, Jeff. I'm so happy to be here. So uh, we're talking about Yusef Hawkins today. Tell me a little about the origins over your film, Storm Over Brooklyn. What led you to want to work on this documentary? Well, it's, it's fascinating. One of Yusef's great friends, uh, Charles Darby, he um, approached me back in 2016 because he had a dream, actually. Uh, Yusef came to him in a dream and told him, don't forget me. And Charles, you know, he was so driven that he reached out to filmmakers uh, he knew, and the filmmakers he knew knew me, and uh, we joined together. So it was really Charles Darby, Victoria DeCosta, and uh, my producing partner, Javon Frank, who formed this core team and um, kind of pushed the, put, moved the boulder forward, and eventually we teamed up with some brilliant people at the American Black Film Festival, Lightbox Entertainment, and eventually got to HBO. And talk a little about the the structure of the film and the elements that you wanted to bring together, because there's been so much reporting on this over the years. But from what I understand, you're going to shed a lot new light. You'll hear from voices who you may, may people might not have heard from before. Yes, yes. You know, this is a, a complicated story. Uh, there are a lot of people involved. Um, there's on an intimate level. There's a complete story, and on a citywide level, there's there's a complete story too. And there's two sides to the story on both of those levels. But what I really wanted to focus on was the family's experience. Um, a lot of times, you know, when people um, fall victim to deadly racism, uh, their names become popular and, and we, we mourn uh, their, their loss. But what happens to the family members, the brothers, the mothers, the fathers, and, and the best friends, is kind of lost on us and, and, and fades away. And this story, uh, although it covers um, um, the, the, the story in its entirety, is really driven by uh, the family's experience. And um, in and, and my heart, the, the star of the show is really Yusuf's mother, uh, Miss Diane Hawkins. So that, I'm, I'm proud to say that that's, that's the approach that we took. And, and it's, it's good you say that, because I had briefly talked to her uh, around the time that Keith Mondello had gotten out of prison. I know that she has largely shied away from the press. She's talked a little. Uh, but uh, you said a few moments ago about the dream and, and uh, the phrase, don't forget me. What do you want people to know about Yusuf Hawkins himself and what he was like? Well, I, you know, I want them to know that he was a kind person. Um, he was a leader in his family during the years when his father wasn't there. I want people to know, when you watch the film, you'll hear directly from his friends and relatives what an inspiration he was. Um, but uh, on another level, a lot of people don't know, even know what happened to Yusuf. And a lot of people, uh, people who've seen parts of the film can't imagine 
that <clears throat> what happened to him happened in New York, and they can't. Uh, they're shocked to see what how the people responded when Reverend Sharpton led um, marches marches through Bensonhurst and how those counter protesters behaved. So I want people to understand a little bit about who Yusuf was and and really that this happened in New York City. You know, and I grew up in in Westchester, and I know New York City branded itself and still does as one where it's it's very liberal and tolerance was a big word thrown out back then. But these things happened and they continue to happen. So that's what I want people to know. And and you look back at the climate back then, this was uh, uh, within close proximity to uh, uh, Howard Beach. Uh, we also had uh, the Central Park uh, uh, jogger mm-hmm. case at that uh, as well. You know, what was the climate in New York City at that time? Well, you know, a lot, a lot of people might not understand it. It's, what you're saying is exactly true. Um, if you think about the 80s, you know, you think Willie Turks, he was murdered in 82. Uh, Michael Stewart in 83. Eleanor Bumpers, 84. And then Griffith in 86. And then the exonerated five, they were falsely uh, convicted. Uh, that uh, Central Park incident was in April. And what happened in Houston happened in August. And a lot of times, and, and we talked to different people, of course, Reverend Daughtry, and um, C. Vernon Mason and, and, and Reverend Sharpton and Mayor Dinkin, there was not, uh, it wasn't common for the perpetrators of these crimes to be brought to justice in a way that even remotely brought satisfaction to the victims' families. And so you have, um, you know, you can say powder keg, but these things happen all the time. A history of these injustices happening and the people who uh, commit these crimes not being uh justly uh convicted and so the climate was one where i think part of new york felt that black people were to blame and and they blamed black people for their poverty they blamed black black people for their position in life and for graffiti everywhere and, and drugs and everything like that they needed someone to blame and they 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 did blame black people and a lot of black people I mean, I, I can't speak to everyone, but it would be easy to blame uh, the powers that be who were mostly white for the fact that justice hadn't been served all this time in, in, a, in a city that brands itself as being so liberal. Um, so that's tension. That's a great deal of tension. And what happened to Yusuf uh, really uh, set off a spark. And then how did this, in the days and weeks and months afterwards, how did this shift those perceptions did it significantly shift those perceptions i think it 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 kind of took a veil off of off of new york as how Reverend Shopton said in the interview it, there's no hiding it um, you can hide it and then somebody gets killed and i think that as a little aside that's what's kind of exciting to me as a filmmaker a new york city and america prides itself on some brand that is really a lie and that 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 leaves a lot of uh, fertile ground for filmmakers who want to tell the truth because there's always going to be some lie to uncover. And when the lie about Bensonhurst being a place where there's no racism got removed, ooh, it, it set off a firestorm that the press kind of was really drawn to because it was so visually appalling. And, you know, the, the shouts and disrespect of Yusuf, the spitting at, at, at Yusuf's family, throwing watermelons at these people whose son got murdered, yelling the N-word, this and that. This is just, just vicious behavior. People outside of that town were shocked, but 
it, it led to a reaction that I think was positive, uh, where at least um, the city was on its toes and, and at uh, looking at itself and eager to uh, bring the people uh, who did this to justice. And, and that, I think, is, is a good thing. Do you think that, you know, uh, that in bringing people to justice, that uh, prosecutors, that authorities did not go far enough, that there were a number of others who were involved that night who had eluded uh, getting charged and getting caught? From from my research, absolutely. I've never seen a case. So, like, according to the police records, and, you know, I've listened to the NYPD recordings, there's, there's certain people who were there who um, gave statements uh, that night, you know, there was a large crowd of people who surrounded Yusuf, uh, his friend Luther, who gave us his first-hand testimony, Claude and Troy. And I've never seen a case where a crowd of people surround a person and that person gets shot and only one person uh, is in jail uh, uh, for murder. So I do think other people are culpable for, for, for what happened. And, I, and I'll tell you what, um, we found a lot of resistance. Uh, trying to get people to agree to be part of our documentary. And the only person outside of Joey Farmer, who is in the film, only person from Bensonhurst who agreed to participate was the only black person there. And, and, and even though, uh, he, you know, he has adopted the Bensonhurst stance on things, I, I do feel a little bit salty that no one, after all these years, has the courage to stand up and speak about it. And when I overthink things, as I tend to do, I'm like, if some, all these people are so scared to speak about who else was responsible, then there have to be people out there who were responsible who have not been brought to justice. And if that's the case, then there are other people out there who know that there are people in Bensonhurst who haven't been brought to justice, and they know who they are, and they're still not speaking all these years later. So when I hear a lot of things about, oh, you know, Bensonhurst is not like that. We're, we're a good community. I hear you because not everybody's the same, but there are still people now who still don't think that it's the right thing to do to just tell the truth about what happened. And I'm sure a lot of people have said to you in this process, why do you even need to be revisiting this? This is 30 years ago now. Why are you bringing this up again? I mean, <laughs> why do we celebrate the 4th of July? You know, like his history is important. You know, our history is important, and we have to understand that somebody's life is precious. And the people who were victimized by this attack still are living. Uh, Yusuf's family and his friends are still tormented by what happened. And it's important that we fully understand what took place, and it's important that we honor this person's life and the people who are living with this pain right now. So not only that, the... The, there, there are certain environmental effects that allowed this to happen. And if you look at this article the New York Times released in 2015, um, it's called Mapping Segregation, if you Google that. It shows New York, uh, according to census data, kind of, kind of current data, and how divided we are. And de facto segregation is the only thing that you can call it. It was the same way back in 89. And we are participating in, in, in uh, an environment that makes it easy for people to be prejudged as as enemies, prejudged as uh, criminals. I, I heard you play the interview you, you, you uh, had with Keith Mondello earlier. He said he felt uh, a threat. If you feel threatened by someone and you, you know that they're black, and then the first black person who comes to your town, you end up 
you know, that end up happened to him without you even asking who he is. All of that action that took place has to do with you prejudging who that person is. And that only takes place in a city that allows us to be so divided. So that happens now. And what happened to Yusuf uh, and the dynamics that existed back then exists right now. That's the only reason that I really agreed to dedicate years of my life to this film is that it has modern-day significance. And also, once I met Yusuf's mother, I was like, wow, this, I have to give her a chance to get this off her chest. And you said earlier, when did you first start? Where, when were the seeds of this documentary planted? How many years uh, ago? Well, I, 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 Charles Darby and uh, Victoria DeCosta were working on this before I got on board. And I think it was in 2015. And I got on board in the first quarter of 2016. And I uh, helped them with the development and, and um we took it from there. And the reason I'm asking that is I'm also, as you're speaking, thinking about when uh, we saw a new president step into office and what has happened since then, because we're living in such a polarizing time right now. Uh, and as I've pointed out, we're seeing a steep rise in hate crimes, violence, and, ma- and mass murder. And as you look back on Yusef Hawkins and you look at the climate today in our country, are you worried about other innocent victims? Absolutely. Um, statistically, if you look at um, uh, demographics in New York, the residents who populated Bensonhurst have migrated to Staten Island. And we all know Eric Garner was murdered in Staten Island. There was a young 16-year-old named Deshaun McKenzie who was chased to his death uh, in Staten Island, a black kid chased by a group of white people, similar to what happened to Yusuf. And like uh, Mayor Dinkins uh, said, you know, leaders set the tone. And if the tone you set does not uh, encourage people and insist that people value the lives of everybody, then you kind of, by omission, are allowing things to happen that could be tragic and deadly. And we've got just a few minutes left, but uh, you know I've got uh, so many questions for you. You mentioned earlier on about uh, Diane Hawkins. Tell mm-hmm. us a little about you know what she, what her story is that uh, you know what she shared with you on film about her and her son. Well, she loved her son very much, and um, she has two other sons who she loves very much, and this was so painful for her uh, and. As, as you stated earlier, she didn't uh, really get in front of the camera back then, and it was really a delicate process to to interview her. But I will say that she's a very kind person, and she's still very hurt by what happened to her son. But uh, when you watch the film, you'll understand um, what she, the challenges that she was facing before all of this happened. And you know what happens when your son's murder, when your son becomes a martyr? She had to put aside that personal, important, critical process of mourning for your, your murdered child in order to allow the larger community and its needs to, for lack of a better kind of phrasing, uh, use Yusuf's murder as an example of, of how wrong things are. And that was tough. And I think her deciding and being willing to put aside that grieving process um, made it even harder for her to get through this. And I hope that once people, when people see this film, they're able to, to at least have a greater appreciation for what happens to her, what happens to her, and um, you know, maybe tip, tip, tip their hat to her. We're, we're in the process right now of getting 
uh, support to change uh, Verona Place, the street where Yusuf's mural is up in Bed-Stuy, getting that street name changed to Yusuf Hawkins Way. And, and, and one of the things that motivates me and the rest of the team in that process is that we want to, uh, Ms. Hawkins to know that we honor her and we honor her son. And I, I'm reflecting on uh, the Netflix film, When They See Us, uh, and how that changed the conversation. This became such a, uh, a public discussion. You know, I live in Queens, and it became it drove the Queens, one of the topics, the Queens District Attorney's Race campaign. Uh, uh, I'm curious what impact you hope your film has. Well, I mean, to be honest, I, I really just want people to know what happened and to care about what happened. And I, I don't I don't know if I have any other agenda than uh, people understanding a little bit about who Yusuf was and and a lot about why this took place. And I guess maybe one of my main hopes would be that New Yorkers, you know, we can all just really take a step back and understand what's happening and these larger forces that are playing with us. And, um, but I mean, I think that's grand hopes. It's a film and, and, and it covers what happened. And I hope that people really appreciate Yusuf's life and appreciate what his family and friends, uh, have endured. And on top of that too, what I haven't talked much about is, is Reverend Sharpton. He, he did, uh, in my personal opinion, an outstanding job in response to what happened to, Yusuf, and he he marched. He led all these marchers, dozens of marchers through Bentonhurst, where Yusuf was killed, surrounded by these people who were shouting racist things. And me, as a filmmaker, I had to be in Bentonhurst one midnight by myself. Just well, I had a PA filming, it, and it was very scary to be there. And it, <laughs> I, what I say, like I was scared to my bones, and I'm not a scared type of person, you know. But uh, it's just because of just being there is just so eerie and frightening. But it just is a, it's a testament to how courageous uh, the leaders were back then, including um, Alton Maddox and, and, and C. Vernon Mason and, and uh, Mayor Dinkins and others. So, Muta Ali, we've got just about 30 seconds left. Can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about Storm Over Brooklyn and, and about you as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Storm Over Brooklyn. So, uh, on Instagram, just follow at Storm Over Brooklyn. That's the same for Facebook and for Twitter at Storm Over Brooklyn. And really, uh, please follow because we, we want to gain as much support as we can to tra- change uh, the street name to Yusuf Hawkins Way um, out in Bed Stuy. And if you want to uh, follow me, I'm at Muta Ali. M U T A A L I. And just uh, for our listeners who are interested in seeing the documentary, there's no air date set yet, correct? Correct. Yeah, not yet. As okay. soon as there is one, I'll let everybody know. And definitely let us know here at BAI as well. I'd love to be able sure to thing. talk about it again. Muta Ali, thank you so much for joining me here on City Watch today. Thank you. All right. So uh, we're, we just talked with Muta Ali about his upcoming documentary, Storm Over Brooklyn. There's also been a lot of reporting on this incident. Uh, there was also a book uh, called For the Color of His Skin, The Murder of Yusef Hawkins and the Trial of Bensonhurst uh, by John DeSantis. Uh, so that is my next guest, John, who I have tracked down, he is, uh, he's published a number of books. He grew up in New York City, spent years as a street reporter covering crime in courts uh, for UPI, the New York Times, other national media outlets. Uh, he's also reported for the Washington Post, uh, AP, and Chicago Tribune. 
35 years as a, a journalist and, and re- recently moved uh, to the Louisiana uh, Bayou country. John has always been drawn into explorations of racial inequality and overall injustice as evinced in his investigative pieces in the newspapers he has worked for over the years. And he joins me now. Welcome to City Watch. Well, thank you very much. So, so I have your book in hand, uh, marked some of the pages, but I wanted to first start off by asking you what led you to focus on this tragedy, you know, uh, and talk a little about where you were reporting from at the time. At, at the time that this occurred, I was uh, working uh, on a contract basis for United Press International, and I, uh, I was based in the Brooklyn courts. And uh, I was asked one day uh, after this tragedy had occurred to cover part of the uh, funeral services. It was a day when uh, Mayor Koch was there but got some bottles thrown at him as he left the funeral home. There were hundreds of people outside the funeral home. And, he left, and he, left from the, he left from the side, if I'm correct. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. He left from the side. And... and Are you there? At that time to oh, this okay. case. Yeah, I'm right here. I thought I, I lost you for a second. Oh, no. I, I was not particularly attached to this situation, but after witnessing some things that occurred at the uh, funeral home and coming to a realization of how important this situation was uh, to the city of New York, to everybody, uh, I started following it very closely. Jerry Mullaney, who at the time was the uh, UPI Metro editor, uh, allowed me to do a good deal. Started covering the marches. Uh, and, and I knew that I was watching something and writing about something that, number one, was historically important. And number two, what I came to realize over time, writing five or six hundred word wire stories on the given events of the day relating to this case could not do it justice and there was a much bigger story that people needed to know which was how we ended up getting into the uh, idea of the book and what were the conditions in this you you go into this in 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 the book but uh, describe for our listeners what the conditions were in the city that kind of led up to this New York City was a highly uh, racially polarized place and at that time. And, and, and I think when we may get into a little bit later the significance of this case uh, from several uh, perspectives in, in that area. We, we had experienced in New York uh, the killing of a transit worker, Willie Turks, back in the early 80s. There was the Howard Beach case which involved the death of a black man, Michael Griffiths, who was pursued uh, by a mob of young white people in Howard Beach. Uh, You had also in Poughkeepsie, which had uh, focused a very unfavorable light on Reverend Sharpton, who became the advisor uh, to Yusuf's family after this occurred. And there... There were situations going on where the polarization level was 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 just very very high, uh, 
and a lot of the fear, a lot of the uh, concerns that members of black communities in New York had at that time, there was not as great a level of consciousness among many white people at that time of the significance of some of these events. And so when Yusuf was killed, of course, you know, once again, it was another case involving race in New York, but there were some things that occurred uh, later on that, that made it far more significant and that painted a much more stark picture of what the racial realities were in the city at that time. And what's so fascinating about the book is that, you know, for many of us who might have read all of the newspaper accounts, uh, you know, we are getting you know, a, a, a synthesized story. But then I'm reading your book and I'm getting all the great detail of what took place uh, during the trial. And uh, I'd like you to talk a little about the, the uh, what took place in, in the courtroom and about, you know, some of the insights you had about the way that uh, the incoming DA, Charles Hines, handled it and the uh, uh, outgoing DA, Elizabeth Holtzman. Well, Charles Hines uh, was a prosecutor uh, who had uh, been around the block already on, on cases like this. He was the uh, prosecutor in the Howard Beach case, and he had uh, a formula with his staff for trying to figure out who got a lot of people. A lot of people had been interviewed by the police, and the big question was, well, who do we charge and how? And the determination was made that in order for the system to work effectively, in, in their opinion, the um, the murder charges, the, the, the theory of acting in concert, which uh, he had perfected uh, during the Howard Beach case, would be how they would roll with uh, this case, with the arrests that they mistest as to how or whether one would be charged primarily was whether someone, and, and bats were the, uh, the weapon of choice that was being carried by a lot of these young men that night. If you had a bat in your hand, uh, you were more likely going to be prosecuted for murder in this case. And if I recall correctly, Mandelo uh, had a bat. Joey Fama had uh, one of the weapons, because if I'm correct, his weapon was never found? Ah. Uh. I don't recall if it was. I'd, I'd have okay. to look that back up. I'd have to look in the book and see. So let's uh, shift over to Al Sharpton. I, I just talked about him with uh, my previous guest, Muta Ali, whose documentary will be on HBO about this case. In your book, uh, you portray him as, uh, quote, uh, inherently manipulative. Can you talk a little about that? Yes, um, and and. One of the amazing things about covering this uh, very sad case was watching and getting to understand what Reverend Sharpton w was doing at that time. He, and, and, I, and when I say manipulative, I'm referring primarily with his uh, dealings with the news media. The news media in New York at that time hated him. And one of the reasons they hate, they wanted to avoid having him in the story, 
there were things that occurred that made them not be able to leave him out of the story. And, and they were furious at that. They didn't like this. Uh, what Reverend Sharpton really served as at that time, and I don't know if this has ever been properly recognized, he was the PR man, as it were, for a movement that very few people realized was happening in 1980s, early 1990s New York. And what he did, for better or worse, he was one of the forces that kept this case in the headlines. And, and, and that was very important to the family at the time. Uh, they did not want this case to just kind of disappear and have you know, nobody know about it. And one way or another, uh, Reverend Sharpton uh, was able to see to it that there was news coverage, that this was indeed an event. And I will say that his role, peacemaker in this situation, which was not at all widely reported at the time, was very, very important. I do want to go back a moment. Uh, we talked about Charles Hines, but just want to uh, get you to elaborate a little more about Liz Holtzman, because, I mean, she, from what I understand, uh, was politically ambitious at that time. And uh, she uh, pursued an approach uh, that might have not been the most effective as far as uh, how she wanted to uh, pursue charges against uh, a number of the suspects. Can you talk a little about that? Well, Ms. Holtzman, uh, was indeed a highly uh, politicized person. And there was criticism at the time of how her staff was handling the case. Uh, they did not feel that her approach, uh, which uh, included uh, certain separations and in, in how people were tried and, and, and what concessions were made, uh, when she had had taken over this prosecution, just how effective she was. And she was a very media-savvy individual, and Ms. Holtzman, uh, it was rather transparent uh, that Ms. Holtzman was making some decisions and doing some things that may be related more uh, to her future political aspirations than what was actually going on on so in the end, were there factors, was there evidence that you felt didn't come up in court that should have? There was evidence that there, there was evidence that, that came up in court that certainly was useful in Palmer's conviction, although uh, he was not um, uh, the, the jury did not appear totally certain that, that he was the gunman. And that's reflected in it. There were other people who were involved in this case who were not, they may have been questioned, not questioned, one in particular, but uh, there there could have been more uh, that, that should have been done. It, it would appear that once the prosecution had its story straight, or what it felt was its story straight, then there was no need to look further, and they went full speed ahead with the trials. So, John, we've got just about a minute or two left. Uh, as you look back on this uh, this incident and the aftermath, you know what 
insight did it give you into, you know, the fabric of New York City and the, the state of New York City at that time? It made me think very hard into my own history and my own background growing up in a predominantly white working class neighborhood in New York where the black neighborhood 10 blocks away was referred to as the colored section by people I loved and cared for, that New York was far more segregated, that there was far more racial animus than I ever realized was there, and that it needed to be addressed. And, and this case was one of the first steps toward effectively doing that. And how can people learn more about you and the book? Uh, the book, For the Color of His Skin, is available on Amazon.com. And uh, as, as far as me, well, there's a little biography that's there. And uh, they can learn about some of the other work I've done, uh, most recently having to do with a, uh, a, a racial crime resulting in many deaths that occurred 130 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, feel free to uh, look it up on Amazon. John DeSantis, author of For the Color of His Skin, The Murder of Yusef Hawkins, and The Trial of Bensonhurst. Thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you for having me. So you are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Jeff Simmons. This is a special two-hour episode of City Watch. By the way, this is our last day of fundraising for our summer pledge drive. And I'm encouraging you, if you're listening and like the fact that we are commercial-free and listener-supported, I'm asking if you could just become a BAI buddy, give a recurring donation. It's really easy to do. Five, ten, twenty dollars a month comes directly on your credit card or from your account, bank account. You can call 516-620-3602, or you can go online at give to WBAI.org. And we also make it very easy for you if you're on your smartphone and you just want to text WBAI to 41444. It would be wonderful if you're able to become a BAI buddy today. Uh, we also have some gifts that if you do call up at 516-620-3602 and you'd like to donate $75, uh, you can receive two books today, uh, both about Donald Trump, a topic we love to discuss here on WBAI. Uh, one is called The Best People and the other is The Method to the Madness. So we've been talking today about this incident that took place 30 years ago and uh, here in Bensonhurst. And I thought it would be appropriate for us also to talk to an elected official who represents the community of Bensonhurst today. And that brings me to my next guest, New York City Council Member Mark Traeger. He's the council member for the for the 47th district, and this re and represents the neighborhoods of Bensonhurst, Coney Island, Gravesend, and Seagate. He first began interning for Assemblyman William Colton in 2001, and in 2003, at the tender age of 21, he became the youngest president ever of the United Progressive Democratic Club in Bensonhurst. He serves on a number of city council committees, and he chairs the Committee on Education. So we are going to talk a little about his legislative priorities as well. And he also serves on the council's Jewish caucus. Councilman Traeger, welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much for having me on here today, Jeff. I truly appreciate it. So we've been focusing a lot on the upcoming 30-year anniversary of uh, the death of Yusuf Hawkins in Bensonhurst. 
from your experience, can you talk a little about, you know, how often this comes up, how it has changed the neighborhood, and also a little about how Bensonhurst has changed over the last three decades? This is certainly uh, one of the most painful chapters uh, in Bensonhurst's history. Uh, I was only around seven years old um, when uh, Yusuf Hawkins was killed. I I was born um, in 1982, uh, first-generation um, American. From my, my family came here from the former Soviet Union, so I was a young child. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, I, grew up in ben- I grew up in Bensonhurst, and I also was an, a teacher, educator, uh, in the Utrecht High School, which, which was not too far away from where the murder occurred. And speaking with my colleagues who are from, from the neighborhood and people who have history of, of, of what the neighborhood was like during that uh, painful time period, uh, they described significant tension even even in the schools where, uh, you know, you, you had sports teams made up of, of diverse student bodies, uh, you know, students of color, you know, everyone. It, it, it ripped people apart. It ripped friendships apart. It, it ripped uh, the community apart. Um, this was unquestionably uh, one of the most painful, um, hateful chapters uh, in, in, our, in our history. Um, and for a neighborhood that also has uh, many uh, deep, diverse immigrant roots, um, as I mentioned, my family came here uh, from the former Soviet Union. We were actually the first Russian-speaking family on my block. Uh, near near Bay Parkway, um, and uh, I remember when the first Asian American family moved onto the block. I, I made I made it my business to, you know, ingratiate and embrace them as uh, as others embraced me, and I wanted to make sure that everyone felt welcome. But uh, certainly, to understand uh, our history is to accept it and to try to learn, you know, uh, the painful lessons. Um, and I'll also share that, you know, in reading, I'm a former history teacher, and reading about uh, the death and murder of Yusuf Hawkins, you know, I think it was at a time where there were other uh, uh, murders of, of young men of color, uh, Michael Griffith, uh, Willie Turks, and other parts of the city during the 80s of very high tensions. And, um, and former Mayor Dinkins uh, described it best that uh, Yusuf Hawkins died of, of, of racism in the first degree. And so I think that we, we uh, remember what happened by acknowledging what exactly happened and doubling down efforts each and every single day to make sure that something of that tragedy, uh, that it never happens again. And, you know, shortly before the show, I was online looking up the community health profile for Bensonhurst, and it kind of groups yep. it in with uh, Bath Beach and Gravesend and Mapleton, uh, and uh, indicated that more than half of the residents are foreign-born. Uh, Correct. And also the demographics have changed. While it's nearly fi- uh, 50% white, it's about 48% white, it's also uh, 36% uh, Asian, but the communities are only about 1% black. Uh, at this time. How has the neighborhood changed, in your opinion? You know, uh, there was a recent report that that, uh, said that Bensonhurst, I think only second to Washington Heights, has uh, one of the highest number of foreign-born residents living in New York City. I think over 77,000 residents uh, 
are, are, are foreign-born. So it's a neighborhood that is incredibly diverse in terms of language, culture, ethnicity, um, but certainly there's no question that you know more should be done, needs to be done to have further integration, um, and, and, and not just in Bensonhurst, but certainly other parts of the city. But I, I would note that if you walk along, you know, some of our main commercial corridors in Bensonhurst, you'll 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 see whether it's a it's a pizzeria, a Mediterranean restaurant, Asian American restaurant, Italian. You know, it's there are many very diverse options and and, uh, and areas here, um, and so it, it certainly has evolved. Uh, into a more more very immigrant rich neighborhood, uh, and but that's a part of the history as well. I mean, I, one of the things I, I did when I was a teacher, I looked at uh, the yearbooks uh, f- from the local schools, and you see how certainly the names uh, change. You know, the faces evolved, but as you get closer to the eighties, nineties, and so forth, did you start seeing more increased diversity? Um, uh, but I, I think that. Bensonhurst, like other neighborhoods in New York City, certainly could has more 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 to go in terms of further integration. And you know, and looking more broadly at the city, uh, I had noted in earlier shows as well with some of the guests about that we witnessed here in the city, you know, something that's been happening across the country as well, a rise in hate crimes. I mean, the NYPD had reported that as of early June, uh, there were 184 hate crimes in the city, and a, a large chunk of them uh, had been attacks on Jews. And uh, uh, and 18 of them were uh, against people based on sexual orientation. Another 18 uh, victims who were black. Are you know? Do you feel that we have a climate in the city uh, right now where there can this can lead to more Yusuf Hawkins? There is no question that we are seeing a significant spike in hate crimes uh, in New York City and across the country, and I would even argue it's happening globally. There is a very uh, there is a disease uh, called ignorance that is certainly um, being fueled by uh, very irresponsible, reckless uh, leaders. I think you know who have, who have also used uh, social media and, and the media in general as, as platforms to advance hate and messages of, of just uh, just outrageous ignorance and dangerous ignorance. So there is certainly a climate that's being perpetuated uh, by, uh, by just, quite frankly, people that just want to advance hate. Uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the rise of white nationalism. We're seeing the, the rise of hate crimes, certainly against Jews here in New York City. It's one of the highest hate crimes committed, according to NYPD reports, anti-Semitic crimes are significantly on the rise. Uh, so I am very concerned uh, about this this rise of, of hateful climate. Um, but I think that we need an all-hands-on-deck approach. Uh, certainly you need to hold those folks responsible who are committing these vile acts of hate. Uh, we certainly need to double down on education efforts. I think, to me, education is the true antidote to, to ignorance, and, and but I also think we need responsible leadership. You need leaders who uh, who have the bully pulpit, who have access to, to, to mass audiences to be responsible and careful with their words and to bring people together. I, you know, let me tell you, Jeff, in my, in my opinion, one of the most important parts of my job as an elected official, even though there's no, there's no way to measure it, because uh, you know it's not it's not tallied by, by a vote column, but is to find ways to bring people together, 
it is one of the most challenging parts of my job, but it is one of the most important parts of my job because there are so many forces out in, in play to try to divide and rip people apart. But we have to bring people together and make sure that everyone could live together and, and prosper together, go to great schools, enjoy great parks, and just experience the fullness of a neighborhood. So, um, and I, I, that, that might sound cliche, but it really is one of the most important parts of any leader's job. So a few moments ago, you had mentioned that education is the antidote, and you are the chair of the city council's education committee, and as you mentioned, right. uh, former teacher at uh, New Utrecht. Uh, right. Are our city schools doing a, a, a good job, in, you know, or a, a job at all in, you know, uh, preventing kids not only from falling through the cracks, but, um, you know, to, to promote tolerance and to promote understanding so that, you know, that they graduate knowing, you know, accepting diversity and accepting the fact that not everyone looks like me or sounds like me or talks like me, but we're all human. Like, are our city schools doing enough? Well, I, I, I look at this question. It's a great question. I look at this through a number of lenses. You know, first, I am a proud product of the public school system. As mentioned, I was a teacher in the public school system. I was a member of my school's leadership team. I was a UFT delegate, and now I have the honor of serving as the education chair. So I've seen the system now through a number of, of lenses. Uh, let me make a statement that still hits me to my core. Our public schools, children are never, in our public school system have never experienced a fully funded public school system. Kids in New York City have never experienced a fully, pub, fully funded public school system. Uh, New York State owes New York City over a billion dollars. Now, that what does that mean as far as answering your question? That means resources to hire uh, licensed, trained personnel, opportunities for kids in arts, music, and sports, uh, because that's, a, that's also very important to, to the child's school day, are being denied and deprived to our kids because of, because of underfunding. So when, when people ask me whether our schools are good or bad, I look at it whether our schools are under-resourced or not. Um, and most of our schools are under-resourced, so there's certainly always more work to do. Um, I, I will say that one of the bills that I, uh, one of the things I, I advance in this past budget, for example, is to uh, hire a significant number of social workers to better meet the social, emotional needs needs of our children. In a school system, over one million students, when we had we had under uh, 1,500 social workers. In this last budget, we made sure to hire over 200 new social workers. Also, New York City school system, over one million kids. We had only one Title IX coordinator uh, who is a critical, it's a critical position that is dedicated to making sure that we prevent and address any uh, acts of sexual discrimination, gender-based violence and bullying. And we only had one interim person for the entire city of New York. In this past budget, we made sure to hire over seven. But let me tell you about a bill, Jeff, that I'm, I'm advancing in the city council now because you said something profound about whether our students are seeing that type of diversity, you know, in, in their schools. I have a bill that would require the DOE to report on staff demographics because, you know, in our school system, over 70% of our students happen to be black and Latino, but there's a real question about diversity amongst staff, making sure that it's reflective of the city of New York, whether the city is doing enough to hire, you know, staff and personnel and school leaders that really, you know, comprise and celebrate the diversity of our city. Uh, and so that bill will be making its way uh, this fall, and I will work very hard uh, with the Speaker of the Council 
to, to try to advance it. So to, to, to kind of summarize for your, for your question, um, there's more work to do, but we need more resources and we need more information in order to really get the job done. But I'm still proud of the kids in our school system who do so much with, with fewer resources that the schools are entitled to. So we've got just about a minute or two left. I do want to come back to uh, the anniversary of yeah. the uh, incident on August 23rd. And, you know, I think about how, like, Reverend Sharpton was out of town this weekend concerning the uh, five-year anniversary of uh, Michael Brown's passing at Ferguson. Right. If Reverend Sharpton were to hold another march or rally in Bensonhurst to mark the anniversary, what type of reception do you think he would get? Well, uh, I, I, I personally would welcome um, Reverend Sharpton uh, to uh, certainly in any type of format he wants to have a conversation, a way to to heal, to remember, to acknowledge, to accept what happened, and and to find ways to bring people together. So I mean I I think this is a time to bring folks together to acknowledge what happened uh, and and to find ways to uh, learn the painful lessons from the past to make sure that it would never happen again. And I certainly um, respect um, uh, Reverend Trumpton's uh, efforts, in both in, in this case and many uh, of the cases that he's been involved in in, in his pursuit of, of for civil rights and justice uh, for, for, for all people. So I, I certainly would welcome Reverend Trumpton's voice. Uh, New York City Council Member Mark Traeger, how can people learn more about you and your office? Well, uh, they could follow me. Uh, I, I have a Facebook page, uh, Mark Traeger. I also have a, a Twitter handle, uh, Mark Traeger 718, which is um, I'm a proud, dedicated night. Um, and certainly I have my city council website uh, where we post information about my, my committee hearings. Uh, I chair the education committee, which is something I take very, very serious. And so uh, I'm always open uh, to hear feedback. Uh, and ways to get better and to better better serve the public. So I, I truly do appreciate this opportunity, Jeff. Councilman Traker, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you as much. Thanks so much. So uh, earlier we spoke with uh, John DeSantis, uh, an author, but also a, a reporter. And reporters are often best positions positioned to see all sides or both sides of a story because they've got access to people on both sides of an issue. They talk to those who are deeply impacted, like family members and friends, not just the elected officials and law enforcement. So that brings me to uh, my final guest today before we take listener calls. My final guest is actually a former colleague of mine here at in New York City. We both had worked for New York One News in the 1990s, way before Spectrum came in. Dominic Carter was a familiar face as the host of Inside City Hall and now can be seen as a political commentator on Fios TV and also heard on radio on some other station. Uh, he began his career in radio, field reporting for L- WLIB, WBLS, before he went on to TV six years later. And as a radio reporter, he was reporting from the front lines of this case. Dominic, welcome to WBAI. Jeff, it's an honor to be on with you. Yes, we're longtime colleagues and friends. And I, I want to say, before we go any further, I really salute your career as a journalist and what you're doing now. Um, you are on the front line. And, and I know, and I know we're going to talk about the Yousef Hawkins case, but you have spent your career searching for the truth. And my brother, I commend you for what you've done throughout the years. 
Dominic, thank you very much. And, you know, I feel the same way about you. I think you're terrific. Whoops, I'm biased. Okay. (laughs) So you covered this story from the outset. Can you take me back to even like that night that or how you heard about it, those earliest days? Talk a little about your coverage and and what it was like then. Well, Jeff, there are so many different ways to look at this. And uh, you've been doing this throughout the show today. And again, you're going to be commended for doing so. I came in from the prism of the election, the Democratic primary for mayor. The hurtly contested Democratic primary for mayor was only weeks away. I was based out of City Hall covering uh, what had to be described as a contentious uh, term for the incumbent, Ed Koch, and you had the African-American candidate, uh, the first viable serious candidate, David Dinkins, looking to knock off Ed Koch. And so when this case happened, it was it was national, and in fact, Jeff, it was international headlines immediately, immediately, weeks before a Democratic primary, just weeks before a Democratic primary, black candidate against a white candidate in an overwhelmingly Democratic city, so the, the presumption, the assumption was whoever won the primary was going to win uh, for mayor of New York and have an African-American uh, 16-year-old black kid innocently gunned down in Bentonhurst. So it, was, it, it screamed major headlines from the beginning. And the live trucks in front of the uh, family home, the Hawkins family home, was indicative of the fact of the type of case that this was. This was no normal case from the very beginning. And you had already, uh, for instance, you had already worked with uh, Reverend Sharpton on other stories, uh, if I'm correct? Yes. So tell me a little about, you know, his role from the beginning on this and, you know, and the reactions of people as he started to lead the protests. Well, you know, oftentimes Reverend Sharpton takes a lot of uh, some have called him uh, an ambulance traitor and so on. But I can tell you, as a matter of fact, because I was there, uh, he did not reach out in this case, Jeff. What happened was I was at the, the family home. I was the only reporter inside. There were about 15 trucks and that television trucks outside. And Moses Stewart, Yusef uh, Hawkins' stepdad, uh, was, was livid in terms of you could see his anger. And Yusef Hawkins' mother, uh, Diane, she was more reserved. And so Moses said to me, after I did an inter- a live interview with him on WLIB, he said, listen, I'm going to make sure that this never happens again. I need to get the Reverend Al Sharpton. Do you have any way of... Re- I'm telling you, Jeff, this is a fact of what went down. Do you have any way of reaching Reverend Sharpton? And I said, well, I, I have his telephone number. I can give him a call. And so I called Reverend Sharpton, and he just so happened to answer the phone. And I explained the situation to him. He was already aware of it. And at that point, Mr. Stewart got on the phone with Reverend Sharpton. And within a matter of hours, Reverend Sharpton was there at the family residence. But he came solely at the request of the family of Bruce F. And if I remember correctly, I, I believe I had read that they, at the same time, had turned away uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson? 
Well, I can only speak to what I know. And what I know is they reached out to Reverend Sharpton, the, the family of Yusef Hawkins, and they wanted him, and they wanted him involved, and immediately, Jeff, the Hawkins family became a political pawn. Immediately. So you have this major incident where an African-American youngster is gunned down in Bensonhurst in a predominantly Italian-American community. We're just days away from the primary for mayor, and each candidate is trying to get a hook into the Hawkins family. You had David Dinkins trying to get a hook into the Hawkins family, and as the African-American, it was expected that he would be able to reach out to them. And so if he wasn't, it would have been uh, a major setback on liability. But you also had Ed Koch do backdoor routes. And I'm telling you why I witnessed from being there inside the house that was trying to get the Hawkins family. And so whoever emerged with the support of the family, by all indications, was going to go on to win the Democratic primary for mayor of New York City. And it's interesting. We're talking about the Democratic primary. You also had Republicans were running uh, that year. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, Ron Lauder. Uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Wait, I'm sorry, Jeff. Oh, I was going to say, you know, it's leading me to uh, up to the funeral that from what I understand as well, you know, Koch was booed, uh, what left by the side uh, uh, from uh, the church and uh, Dinkins received uh, a lot of, I guess, applause and praise. Uh, can you talk a little about all of the emotions and the highly charged atmosphere around the funeral? My assumption is that you had covered this as well. Yes, I, I was there. Uh, I had never, and I discussed all of this in a television uh, special, uh, Front Lines. I don't think it's on the air anymore, I'm not sure, but on uh, on Channel 13. And one of the TV stations actually at the wake. So remember again, each candidate for mayor, and, and let, me just, let me just backdrop, let's do a backdrop, Jeff, if it's okay. You have to understand that 1989 was a special year for African-American elected officials. So let's rewind to 88. Jesse Jackson runs for president. Now, why is that important? He didn't win. It's important, Jeff, because I covered his campaign traveling around the country and the world with him. It's important because Jesse Jackson raised voter registration numbers in minority communities in ways that had not been done before. So the backdrop is Jesse Jackson, 88, the second time he ran for president, he greatly increases minority voter registration numbers in, in all across the country. So in 89, Jeff, not only was Dinkins uh, as the first African-American running for mayor, but in Seattle you had uh, Norm Rice the first African-American mayor of that city, a city that was not predominantly minority, just like New York. Uh, the demographics were even more white than Seattle. You had Doug Wilder, someone that I know you know in terms of having covered him. Doug Wilder, this is the same year, 89, that runs mixed history and runs for the governor of Virginia. So Jesse Jackson raises voter registration numbers in minority communities. And then Jackson becomes a liability himself, where all these three candidates had to distance themselves from him because of his controversial comments he made about New York City. So you had Dinkins, you had Norm Rice, you had Doug Wilder, 
and they, and they all go on to success. But you asked me, Jeff, about the, the wake and the funeral. And so you have Ed Koch, who stepped in some major uh, political, a major political mess, if you will, uh, by some comments that he made later on that I'll get you. But so you have Koch that shows up at the wake. You have Dinkins that shows up at the wake. Koch was not welcomed at the, at the wake, Jeff. So the mayor shows up. He had to show up, paying his respect. And he was immediately booed, and they started throwing bottles at his vehicles. I had never seen Jeff, a NYPD police detail for the mayor, drive backwards up the street to get away. But that's what they had to do. And there's video of this. This is what they had to do to get Mayor Koch out of there safe and sound without uh, the situation escalating. So you had Koch show up at the wake for Yusef Hawkins, but he was not welcome. And Dinkins received the hero's welcome. But Jeff, it was not it was not smooth sailing for Dinkins either. Because as the live cameras, and I'm going back a day or two, as the live cameras were outside the, the Hawkins family home, I was inside as almost a fly on the wall. And the conversation and Reverend Softon was there. And the conversation that the Hawkins family had with David Dinkins, it and Bill Lynch was there also, the guy that got Dinkins elected. It was not a good conversation. They gave him the riot act. It was profanity used. And so at that point, I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? They were very angry at Dinkins and anyone that was part of the political establishment. Dinkins was running as part of the gorgeous mosaic to bring the city together. And all the Hawkins family wanted to hear was justice for their son. They were, they were not buying into the racial healing. And so I really thought that Moses Stewart was going to leave from that private meeting with all those cameras outside and blast Dinkins publicly. If he had did that, David Dinkins' campaign for mayor would have been in deep, deep trouble. Instead, Moses Stewart did the exact opposite of what he did in the meeting privately, and he, he, he didn't normally embrace Mayor Dinkins. He was the almost then candidate Dinkins, but he didn't disrespect them either. And so Reverend Sharpton played a major role, whether folks realize it or not, in keeping the lid on Moses Stewart from blasting Jenkins in public. And so the wake situation, I was also there for the, um, for the funeral. And Jeff, that was very interesting because you had Governor Cuomo there, right? Now imagine this, referring to Mario, Mario Cuomo. Yeah. Mario Cuomo, the sitting governor, attended Democratic governor, Democratic icon. You had Minister Louis Farrakhan speaking at the funeral, and I was broadcasting the funeral live on WLIB. And you also had Reverend Curtis Wells, I believe is his name, who was the pastor of the church. And Jeff, he had one of these deep, baritone voices. And I just, I will always remember what he just kept saying in the eulogy, let freedom reign, or let freedom reign, where African Americans will be able to walk freely in the city. Jeff, it was a very, very different time. Uh, in New York City. There, there were headlines at the time that compared New York City to the Alabama, the ugly Alabama of the past. It was very ugly, very different from what we have now. So, Dominic, we've got just a few minutes left, and you're saying it is very different from what we have right now, but we're also in a very uh, nationally, racially polarizing time. 
And I've asked, you know, several of my guests this already. Do you believe that we, you know, are in a, a state in this country right now where, you know, it's just a matter of time before there's another Yusuf Hawkins? You know, Jeff, that, that is my great fear. Um, it only takes one second for something to escalate quickly. I think that as a result of Yusef Hawkins, people learn their lessons. The Joey Bamas of the world that was made an example while I'm still in jail. Keith Mondello, the guys that were involved, convicted of lesser charges. I think people do that now. you got to think before you act. But I am afraid uh, that from the Trump administration and the language that is used, that some of the followers will interpret that to be emboldened to feel that they can do whatever they want to do. Jeff, I pray that we don't go back there. I had never seen anything like that before in my life. I was four years removed from graduate school, and I, I was at almost all the marches in Bensonhurst. And Koch got in trouble when he basically called on the marches to stop. And Jeff, I, I, I saw people hold up watermelon. I had never heard the N-word used so much in my life. And, and this is every time, every week the chapter went into Bensonhurst uh, before he got stabbed. And people were, they would say things like, as you know, Jeff, I'm African-American. And they would say things to me like, we're not talking to you, Dominic. We're talking to those monkeys over there. And, and those are some of the clean language, clean words that people were using. And so I know we're short on time, but I give tremendous credit to the NYPD. Because at the time, New York was a racial outer cage. And they had to have plainclothes officers inside the protesters to keep them safe. They had to have, Jeff, as you know, the community affairs unit. They wear the blue jacket. Mm -hmm. It was really, really, really bad, those marches and the reaction from the community. So I don't think we'll go back to that, but, but you never know, Jeff. So, Dominic, uh, we've got just a few moments left. How can people learn more about you and your work? Um. On Twitter, you can, and there was a great segment I just heard with the councilman. On Twitter, you can reach me at Dominic TV. On Facebook, Dominic Carter TV. But Jeff, I just want you to keep doing what you're doing because we need somebody to put a spotlight on the issues who, who, who's an expert and who's professional and who is fair. So I tip my hat to you. Dominic Carter, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI, and it was wonderful to be able to talk with you again. Thank you, Jeff. So you have just heard from a series of guests talking about the 30-year anniversary, which comes up on August 23rd, of the killing of Yusef Hawkins. Now I want to hear from you. I want to know if you think justice was served. This is Peace and Justice Radio. So did you agree with the prosecution's case? Was there justice? Do you feel Al Sharpton helped bring about justice or inflame tensions? And do you believe there were any lessons that were learned from all of this? Call us at 212 212- Two zero nine two eight seven seven. That number is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Sean is looking at the phone right now, ready to take your calls. So as we wait for that, I just want to uh, bring up one thing which is interesting. We've talked about Joey Fama a number of times, and I did uh, make effort an effort twenty years ago after talking with Mondello uh, to talk with uh, Joey Fama as well. And when I went up to Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora to talk with him. 
uh, he still was denying uh, a significant playing any significant role in this uh, would not he demurred would not talk about whether he fired uh, the weapon that uh, killed Yusef Hawkins. Uh, he uh, is still in prison. I think he's in for at least another two years before he is able to uh, either be eligible for parole or to be released. Uh, but uh, I just remember that interview after talking with Keith Mondello and then going upstate to talk with uh, Fama, and he just uh, would not uh, own any significant portion uh, of, of this incident. So give us a call at 212-209-2877 and let us know if you uh, witnessed this case, if you were in New York at the time, what you thought of the climate of the city, uh, what you thought of Reverend Sharpton's role, how uh, uh, incoming Mayor David Dinkins handled uh, the situation. Uh, if you are from Bensonhurst also and want to give us a call and tell us what Bensonhurst is like today, I'm curious uh, about your perceptions. 212-209-2877. So as we wait for some of those calls, I do, uh, oh, we actually do have a call in. We've got someone on the line. Hi, what's your name? Uh, where are you from? And what is on your mind? Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Dave. I was there. I wasn't living in Bensonhurst, but I was in New York City. And my take on it, it was a tragedy, but I think um, by the family not even giving Dinkins a chance, it made him look very weak. And um, even though his, um, you know, the um, uh, consult, I mean, the people on his campaign did everything possible, I think the Sharpton exacerbating tensions with the march made people feel like New York City was in chaos and that, you know, it was kind of like, let's throw, you know, like in, in the, um, you know, 29, 1930s in Germany where we'll go with Giuliani um, because that's, we, we need some order here. So I thought that um, it was, I thought that that alone guaranteed uh, Giuliani's success, I mean, a win, um, and the demise of New York, as we know it. So in your view at that time, New York City was not as, cha- in your in your view, was not as chaotic? No, I, no, I think there was a sense of chaos mm-hmm. and uh, disorder. However, the handling, the Sharpton taking it up and marching and increasing the tensions made it, it made the appearance or the feeling that this was going, New York City was going downhill quickly, made people less likely to vote for some, you know, rational candidate like uh, Dinkins, or even for that matter, someone like, um, you know, uh, what's his name, that ran for president, um, the Reverend, uh, you know, I thought that it made things feel worse. It's like you have a, a cut, and then you just know, pour iodine on it and it burns. I mean, you pour something on it. It just made everything worse. It made everything out of control. And people got, in my opinion, even Democrats, like, we're going to vote for Giuliani. Um, you know, the hell with it. You know, let's, let's just get something in order, law and order. That's the, that's the feeling. You were law and order. And I think that people got panicked and uh, were fearful. And the atmosphere was blown out of proportion, it was a tragedy, but it was designed to, 
you know, create catastrophe on top of catastrophe. Dave, thank you so much for giving us a call here on WBAI today. I want to remind our listeners the number to call is 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Uh, one of the pages uh, that I had marked in John DeSantis's book for the color of his skin about the Yusuf Hawkins case talks a little about the lingering, lingering effects uh, of this incident in Bensonhurst. So I just want to read this one passage that had stuck out to me that the bitterness has not left Bensonhurst. Its residents still feel... Now, by the way, this was written in 1991, and he had done uh, uh, an updated version, which he said had minor revisions in it, although I don't know what specifically those revisions were. Its residents still feel that their community was unfairly labeled racist and intolerant in spite of the visible and vocal reactions of residents to the marches that took place there. So we've got another call on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and where are you from? My name is Amadoma Bediako. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for joining us today. What's on your mind? I want to say thank you for having this program to note the 30-year anniversary of Yusef Hawkins. I'm an African-American woman, and I think of him often. And the last caller said something about the tensions being increased and chaos mm -hmm. in the city, and everything being made worse by the protests. And I think it's important that when there's a sore or a wound, not that you pour something in to burn it, but you have to get the pus out. And I think there are a lot of people that harbor hate, and that's what led to this crime. It's not a matter of um, making matters worse when you allow people to protest when something horrible like this happens. It's bringing the truth to light. So I thank you for this program. And bringing, you know, honoring Yusef Falcon's life, but also we need to bring the truth to light. There's a lot of ugly truths in New York City. And people want to move on like business as usual and nothing happened then and nothing's happening now. And it's not honest. I thank you so much for giving me a call here today on WBAI. Thank you so much. Thank you. So you're listening to WBAI's City Watch. We're spending this uh, second hour of our special coverage of the 30-year anniversary of Yusuf Hawkins' death, uh, which took place on August 23rd, 1989. The number to call is 212-209-2877. I'm curious if you uh, think about, you know, today, our, our city today, Brooklyn, Bensonhurst today. Has it significantly changed? Uh, do you feel that, you know, we're just waiting for another incident like this to happen, that there still is uh, this type of uh, uh, racial uh, tension in the city? Uh, and do you attribute that to what is going on at a national level when you think about the uh, incidents uh, that we hear about seems like all too often these days? We've got another caller on the line. Hello, welcome to WBAI. What's your name? Yes, my name is Eric from Brooklyn. Hi, Eric. Thanks for and, calling um, in. And, um, yes, this is, will continue to happen for a long period of time due to the fact that we have to understand how this country was built on violence. It was built on hatred. It was built on stupidity at its highest form, meaning that stupidity, when you have Caucasian people, as well as my people too, black, that know right from wrong that were brought up and are able to see prejudice for what it is and don't act on it, that's stupidity at its highest form. For instance, how, it, how are you going to point the finger at Donald Trump when this was going on before he was born? 
hatred, slavery, and everything else started way before he came into existence. So the only way, the only solution that I see is total separation. Let everybody go amongst their own people and live harmoniously and happily. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for calling. I'm also curious uh, what different communities here in the city uh, did in response to this. Not just talking about, say, the, the black community or the Bensonhurst community or the white community. I'm curious if, for instance, you feel the Jewish community responded uh, or did not respond to this. Because we're talking about, you know, how we are, uh, what was uh, Dinkins' line, the gorgeous mosaic, uh, we're a melting pot city. Do communities all come together? I mean, I have been part of, of marches in the past where I have looked around and seen uh, a highly diverse crowd, a highly diverse crowd. Uh, other times it feels like, okay, it is, uh, it, it still is maybe one group that is speaking up largely where others are on the sidelines and maybe not voicing their opinion. I'm curious what you think about that. Give us a call at 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Uh, we talked earlier in the show with uh, Mayor Dinkins. At that time, Rudy Giuliani was also uh, was also running uh, uh, to become mayor. Uh, and I'm curious whether you felt uh, that he, at that point, would have been the right mayor for that time versus uh, uh, Mayor Dinkins. We've got another caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. Hi, you're on the line. Hello, how you doing? Hi, what's Good your name? My name is Kimberly Gentle. Thanks for giving us a call. What's on your mind? Um, I have one opinion that I formed. I hate when people blame uh, Donald Trump for the racial tension because I feel like as an African-American with everything going on, I myself who was educated is not going out here doing anything to harm anybody of any creed of any color at all. So I think it's basically your education, knowing your history. I'm a history major at City College. And basically looking in and really studying economics, sociology, anything of that nature to understand the social dynamic that's going on right now. And that's where I come from, and that's how I was raised, and that's what my point of view is on this whole thing of the massacre that's going on and the tensions that's going on with, um, what, what does it happen in Texas, the shooting in Texas? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much to keep up with, I can't even, I think my brain is in fog right now. Every time I turn on the radio, which I love WBI, it's you. like getting worse and worse. Kimber- Kimberly, I'm curious, what... In your mind, uh, you know, uh, you're right. I shouldn't just say Donald Trump is the cause of all this. But what do you believe are some of the motivating factors? Why do you feel we're seeing more incidents like this? <laughs> cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> I think this has been going honestly, cell phones. I think this has been going on. For, my, my mother said, I mean, my mother's 1961. That's when she was born. And she's like, what? She said, this is nothing new. And I'm like, Ma. She said, girl, get your head out the clouds. It's like, it's been going on for years. She's I'm used to this. And I'm like, what do you mean you're used to this? I mean, she grew up in Harlem and Drew Hamilton Project. She's like, this is nothing new. And I'm like, well, this is new. She said, for your generation, it is. Because you have to dog on cell phones. And that's when I started just basically doing my research. I talked to my family in Alabama, Montgomery, and they're like, yeah, honey, you know, you know, back in the alley was and this, that, and the third, and I'm hearing stories, and it's very traumatic. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I basically blame the cell phones. 
I wouldn't blame the cell phones. I just basically, that's just bringing it to light. Everybody has their cell phones out, and they see the chaoticness, and they see the ugliness of it, and that's what's putting it on the forefront. And, Basically. Yeah, and building on that, it is uh, the ability for all of us just to fire off a tweet or post something on Facebook that social media helps to spread a lot of this as well. I mean, if you go looking for it, you find it. If you constantly have your cell phone usage and you're constantly posting all of the hatred constantly, consistently, it kind of, you know, it just puts you in that, that zone. You know, right now, I, I listen to what happened to Mr. Hawkins, you know, Yusuf Hawkins, and I heard the whole segment that you had, right? And it started raging me. I'll be honest with you. Like, I was like, oh, damn it, yeah, you know. But if you post, you know, kindness and peaceful, people handing out food and feeding the hungry and whatnot consistently, it would, it would change just a little bit. But if you keep on focusing on this ugliness, yes, and you're going to put people in that, you know, that dilemma. I, I see the, like, you know, the side eye that I get, you know, when I shop now. I see, like, I see it now. And I'm like, dang, why do they stand me down? I mean, I'm going through it right now. Kimberly, thank you so much for giving me a call here on WBAI today. And thank you so much for being a regular listener. Thank you so much. The number to call is 212-209-2877. Let us know what is on your mind. I'm cur- uh, My name is Jeff Simmons. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, we've been talking about the 30-year anniversary of the death of Yusef Hawkins uh, in Bensonhurst. Uh, as we wait for another call, I do want to remind our listeners that we are on our final day, in our final day of the summer uh, fundraising drive. It would be wonderful if you could get a pledge today at 516-620-3602. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. I've got another caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name? Oh, thank you. Stephen of Queens, New York. Hey, Stephen. I'm from Queens as well. What is on your mind today? Uh, I remember when uh, all of that went down, and uh, I like to think that What's kind of changed now, in those days, we're talking 30 years ago, um, people were, let's say, on more in their enclaves or certain sections were more, let's say, whites here, blacks there, whereas as the years have moved on, you see people in, you see white people in, in areas that you didn't see them in, let's say, 30 years ago, and, and vice versa. Uh, at that time, People were in their areas, and I think, I mean, I can remember when people with some people, politicians were saying, well, Al Sharpton shouldn't do the marches. And I thought, I, you know, I kind of at first thought, well, well, you know, I don't know about this, but as time it went on and you saw the people there, and then, you know, you saw some of the things that were being said and how, you know, how the people were acting. And I'll compare all of that to, let's say, today, when I'll turn around and see certain marches today. Like, for instance, no one paid any attention to if a black person was killed by the police. Well, now, when you look and see Black Lives Matter and others, well, you'll see a lot of young whites walking along with them. And I'm, you know, and I'm starting to think that it's the generation as time has moved on. And, and, you know, and I think that's a... A good thing. I mean, as far as people like Farmer and some of the, there'll always be people who feel the way they do. And there is nothing, you know, you can do about that. My, 
I, I'll go along with what Dr. King once said. I can't change your heart, but what I can do is come up with some laws or whatever and stop you from hurting me or trying to hurt me or at least enforce the law if you ever do. So that, that's pretty much what I wanted to say about, um, about well, Bensonhurst. A uh, place that, for the most part, I really didn't know much about until around the time Saturday Night Live, no Saturday Night Fever, came out with John Travolta. Stephen, th- thank you so much for giving me a call. So we've got another caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name? Yes, my name is Greg. Hi, Greg. What's on your yes. mind today? Well, I think the people who are calling are not um, understanding. The first caller made a very important point, which was that uh, they had the right to march, and this was a, uh, a very big, a, a very serious crime. But by, by, I think that Giuliani used the tension and his so-called law and order and expertise that he used this and that Sharpton and the protests uh, created a situation that could be exploited by Giuliani, and we were unfortunately uh, given years of uh, horrible um, tenure by Giuliani, and um, Sharpton uh, did very well for himself. He's a multimillionaire. And uh, there should have been protests. But let me ask you, how did it help by marching in uh, Bensonhurst? It showed these people as, uh, they lived there as racist. But I ask you, how did it help the situation? And Trump is using the same racial tensions to get himself elected in a second office. So they're playing into their game. Because the only people uh, who are gained is, you know, is uh, these uh, right-wingers who are using fear, anger, uh, feelings of uh, inferiority, and using this to uh, uh, get their base to come out. Greg, thank you so much for giving us a call here on WBAI today. We've got time for another call. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name? Uh, Steve from uh, Queens. Hi, St- oh Steve, welcome back. Oh no, no, I'm I'm not, I'm, I'm a different. Steve. Oh, you're another Steve. Steve. Okay, <laughs> two Steve. Steves from Queens. Go ahead, sir. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, um, am I on? Yes, you are. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I think the biggest problem is is the lack of education and and the inequality of a public school system, lack of inter- lack of integration, and a lot of intimidation. This situation that you had on back then could happen today in any neighborhood. And, and it's not just exclusive to a white community against the, against the black people coming through there. I mean, we've had incidents where one in particular, right around that same time this happened, um, some black people got together and went out to Long Island on a Friday night and terrorized people at a, at a white diner. I mean, this can happen anywhere. And which brings me up to another name that I, I, you had mentioned you're talking about that I haven't heard, a name uh, Gino Bova. I think he was one of the um, of the defendants in that incident, too. But it's a serious situation that exists right now to this day. And 
the inequality and the and the lack of integration in our public school systems, where people are being uh, live in fear of people from other races and not educated to people of other races, is a major factor in these type of situations. Steve, thank you so much for giving us a call. In fact, that was something that uh, uh, New York City Councilman Mark Traeger had talked a little about, about the education. He should know because he uh, was a former teacher in that area at, at New Utrecht. We're uh, going to be coming down to the final minutes of this show, so I do want to remind our listeners, uh, well, first of all, I want to say thank you uh, for listening to WBAI and tuning in this afternoon. Uh, the, throughout the afternoon, you're going to be hearing uh, some more special coverage of our uh, summer pledge drive, and I would like you to stay tuned to us throughout the afternoon. If you're able to contribute and you'd like to receive a special guest uh, gift, uh, we have two books. You know, we've been talking about Donald Trump on and off, but these two books uh, give you deep insight into his mindset and the people that he's hired. And if you donate uh, $75 today, we'll be happy to send you this uh, pair of books, one called The Best People by Alexander Nazarian, the other The Method to the Madness by Alan Salkin and Aaron Short. Just got a call, 516-620-3602, or you can go to wbai.org or text WBAI to 41444. And all this money that we raise is helping keep us on the air. Uh, we are commercial free. We are listener supported. Peace and Justice Radio, and we're hoping that you'll continue to support us. I'd like to thank all of today's guests, Mayor, former Mayor David Dinkins, Muta Ali, whose documentary, uh, Storm Over Brooklyn, is one that I am anticipating we is going to be very well watched uh, on HBO. No date on that yet. Author John DeSantis, who wrote for The Color of His Skin, The Murder of Yusef, Yusef Hawkins, and The Trial of Bensonhurst. New York City Council Member Mark Traeger, who represents Bensonhurst, among a number of other communities. And also my former uh, New York One colleague from the 90s, uh, Dominic Carter, who was one of the first uh, reporters uh, on the scene covering this back when he was with uh, WLIB. I also want to thank our wonderful and amazing engineer, uh, Sean Rhodes, and of course you, our listeners. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org. Go to Programs and then Archives. The show will be up in about 10 minutes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jack Heights. That's J-A-C-K-H-I-T-E-S because I live in Jackson Heights. And City Watch. And you can um, – City Watch is at City Watch WBAI. We're also on Facebook. Thanks for joining WBAI this afternoon for this special coverage, and stay tuned for our ongoing uh, coverage, uh, our ongoing fundraising this afternoon. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, What a wonderful world The colors of the rainbow So pretty in the sky 
are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands. want your favorite WBAI programming to continue to air without the fun drive day preemption? Becoming a BAI buddy is a great way to prevent that and to help support the station. Just by going to give to WBAI.org, you can donate today. So before you decide to buy that electronic accessory for your smartphone, here are some more fulfilling ways to use that money with some perks. You can use your WBAI membership card and receive discounts on Zipcar, two for the price of one admission at the Museum of the City of New York. 20% off sessions with life and career coach Nina Delavachia, and much more. You will also receive a WBAI tote bag, which you can use to carry around some on-air giveaways. For more information, go to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. Carmen Bruno is the NYC 2019 Youth Poet Laureate. Don't tell me. You didn't know that ticks are common in the United States? Watch out, because they could be found in grass, trees, shrubs, the government. Did you know that they're attached to humans and four-legged creatures? Once a tick bites you, it sticks around for a few days. Potential symptoms of a tick-borne disease includes red spots, a full-body rash, neck stiffness, feelings of wanting to protest, to shout, not my president, to march for your life, when you get bitten, there would be an infestation on your limbs when you don't use an action such as insecticide or going to the polls. Your body would look like if it has many bugs, like politics. So whether you're a human independent, a blue DOG, a yellow DOG, or a CATS, politics will always come back to bite you, makes you bite the bullet, using the bullet to bite people, piercing through skin. These politics will suck your blood oxygenated or not, give you their infectious disease and then tell you that healthcare is a privilege, not a right, right? But they still manage to keep their host alive.